following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, so we're in 2 Peter. Now, we're starting at verse 20 today, and I actually have quite a chunk to read before we get into discussing this. So, if you remember uh, last week or the last couple weeks even, we've been talking through 2 Peter. They've been talking about, last week was about the prophets. Pay attention to the prophets. So, where we're picking up today is going to simply build on that and then move into some new kind of territory. So, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. We're going to go through chapter 2, verse 16. But notice that no prophecy found in Scripture is a matter of the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy has never been a product of human initiative. It comes when men and women are moved to speak on behalf of God by the Holy Spirit. But notice first that no prophecy found in Scripture is a matter of the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy has never been brought forth by or been a product of human initiative. But when men and women are brought forth to speak on behalf of God by the Holy Spirit. So last week was, this is what the prophets said about Jesus. Peter talked about being present when what we call uh, the Mount of Ascension, where he saw this confirmation of the message of the prophets. But now here comes the warning. Just as false prophets rose up in the past among God's people, false teachers will rise up in the future among you. They will slip in with their destructive opinions, some translations say damnable heresies, denying the very master who bought their freedom and dooming themselves to destruction swiftly, but not before they attract others by their unbridled and immoral behavior. Because of them and their ways, others will criticize and condemn the path of truth we walk as seedy and disreputable. These false teachers will follow their greed and exploit you with their fabrications, but be assured their judgment was pronounced long ago and their destruction does not sleep. Now the next paragraph, Peter kind of almost steps out of his text and reminds his audience of three stories they were familiar with. First one, for God did not spare the heavenly beings who sinned, but he cast them into the outer darkness and chaos of Tartarus to be kept until the time of judgment. Number two, he did not spare the ancient world, but he sent a flood swirling over the ungodly, although he did save Noah, God's herald for what is right, with seven other members of his family. And number three, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ash as a lesson for what he will do with the ungodly in the days to come. Although, again, he did rescue Lot, a person who did what was right in God's eyes and who was distressed by the immorality and lawlessness of the society around him. Day after day, the sights and sound of their lawlessness were like daggers into that good man's soul. All right, back to, in some sense, the text. If all this happened in the past, those three things, it shows clearly the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and how to hold the wicked in punishment until the day of judgment. And above all, it shows he will punish those who let the desires of their bodies rule them and who have no respect for authority. People like this are so bold and willful, they aren't even afraid of offending heavenly beings, although the heavenly messengers in spite of the fact they have greater strength and power, make no such accusation against these people before the Lord. These people who speak ill of what they do not understand are no different from animals. They're without sense. 
They're operating only on their instincts. Born to be captured and killed. That's not suggesting false teachers are born to be captured and killed. He's making an analogy between animals of a certain kind. They will be destroyed just like those animals, receiving the penalty for their evil acts. They waste their days in parties and carousing. As they feast with you, these stains and blemishes on your community are feasting on their deceptions. Their eyes are always looking for their next adulterous conquests. Their appetites for sin cannot be satisfied. They seduce the unwary soul, and greed is the only lesson they have learned by heart. God's curse lies upon them. And then one more reference to an Old Testament incident. They have veered off the right road and gotten lost, following in the steps of Balaam, the son of Beor, the false prophet. Balaam loved the reward he could get by doing evil, but he was rebuked for crossing the line. It's a sin. His own speechless donkey scolded him in a human voice, an amazing miracle that reigned in the prophet's insanity. So we could do sermons going back into these Old Testament examples and try to unpack them for a bit more clarity. That's outside the scope of what I want to cover this morning. Perhaps it's something we could talk about in Message Plus. I want to talk about false teachers because Peter's pretty concerned here. This is a lot of space. This is the longest section I've read on a Sunday since we started this book. It's, well, two pages of notes. For Peter simply to say, you've got to beware of false teachers. And I feel like this is a timeless issue, people being what they are. And while once again we could go into what the particular things were that were happening in the early church, I'm more interested for our purposes this morning in how that issue translates for us. So I see two broad categories of things that, that characterize false teachers, what they teach and what they do. So I'm going to give you two examples of what they teach and four examples, I believe, of what they do, four or five. By the way, I'm not going to be naming any names this morning. If you're a little worried that I might uh, say something that's really going to inflame something in you because I step on the toes of your favorite teacher, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I might do it in Message Plus if you ask me. But I, I don't want us to be distracted from what Peter is saying will characterize false teachers. So one of my prayers is that if this is a lesson that is crucial to you because you have access to teaching that is not good and healthy, part of my prayer this morning is that God takes this truth from his word and enables you to apply it um, as you are listening to teaching and preaching. I might also add, I'm going to say this again at the end. I'm always nervous about giving these kind of lists because in this church I am a teacher. We have other people who preach from the pulpit. We have other people who teach classes occasionally. The Bible is clear. There's a great responsibility if you're going to teach because you've got to get God's word right. And you've got to be a particular kind of person if you're going to do this. So one of the things I want to offer to you is that I go through this list, and I'm trying to be honest with this list, about what false teachers look like. If there is something that you see in me or that you see in another teacher or preacher in this church where you go, I have concerns, this list hit too close to home for you, then I beg of you to approach us and challenge us on this. If you need to, do it with grace. If you're nervous about it, bring somebody trusted with you. Right? I, I, I hope none of this looks familiar to you. But I'm just saying, if it does, 
You, you need to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to those of us who teach here, you need to come to us and talk with us about it. We, we good? Amen? Okay. All right. Okay, number one. What false teachers will teach, they'll teach a false view of God. So I think there's a temptation to make God in our image. It's probably as old as humanity. In some ways, it can make it easier for us because we tend to mold God into some kind of shape that feels good to us or is useful to us, which can be very different from being true. So I'm going to give three examples of what this could look like. Uh, do you think that God must love the things that you love? Like, you love certain things, so you're pretty sure God must love them too. Or do you make sure that you love what God loves? Does that distinction make sense? Do you start with you or do you start with God? Because if you think God is pleased with you, and it's because you are pleased with you, that could be a problem. Now, it might be that you're experiencing flourishing in the righteous path of God. You're seeing how the Holy Spirit is working you and you're being transformed and that brings you great joy. Well then, yes. Yes. God is joyful also. But it's so easy for us to get ourselves intertwined with this. So I would just say this. If a teacher of the Bible doesn't present God to you in such a way that you're, that you're not challenged, that's going to be a problem. False teachers will tell you what you need to hear, or what you want to hear, sorry. False teachers will tell you what you want to hear. The Bible describes audiences of people with itching ears. Just means you follow the teachers who affirm you. I think true teachers of Scripture are going to mess with you because the Bible is going to mess with you. If you walk away from the Bible comfortable, it's not been read properly. Now, I hope you also walk away from the Bible with hope, with encouragement, there, all of those things. But I'm just saying that one of the things the Bible does is it messes with us. Because we get caught up in the systems of the world and the teachings and the values of our culture. And if, if you're following a teacher where at times your life is not held up to you in stark contrast to the word of God, something's not right. True teachers will challenge you. Second example, false view of God. Do you think God is primarily a God of justice and anger and consequences? Or do you think God's a God of mercy, love, and grace? Do you think on the one hand you're never good enough for this demanding, perfectionist, ridiculously high standard God? Or do you think God's madly in love with you, like a boyfriend or girlfriend? Do, do you tend to think law is more important or grace is more important? Do you see God as demanding or forgiving? Do you see God as transcendent and far away or near? Now, here's the thing. Everything I've just mentioned, they're aspects of God's nature, even if I loaded the language on some of these a little bit. If you get a full rounded view of God, then you get God who is grace and justice. Right? You get a God who is both transcendent and who is very near. You get a God who is a God of anger and a God of love. You get all these things in God. And if we find ourselves in a distorted side of God, I'd say odds are good, by the way, that it probably has something to do with your family of origin or your church of origin. 
But false teachers will run with distorted aspects of God and just focus on one thing at the expense of everything else. True teachers are trying to look into Scripture and bring the whole message of who God is. So it's not just God is justice, though God is justice. It is also God is mercy. It's not just God is mercy. It's also God is justice. Does that make sense? Get the full picture of God, not focusing on parts. There's a third example you could read. I'm going to keep moving. Number two, uh, false use of the Bible. So we've mentioned before from the pulpit here this principle of never read a Bible verse. The idea is you should read them all. Because a verse has a paragraph, and then a paragraph has a chapter, and a chapter has a section, and a section has a book, and the book is in the whole book of the Bible. And where we can get tripped up, and one thing I think you see in false teachers is that false teachers will often get one verse or one small section, or one story of the life of Jesus, and they're going to run with it and build this huge theology. Meanwhile, there's all these other verses and stories and examples that are part of the fullness of the message of the gospel, but it doesn't fit what they want to say. So they're going to ignore it. One of the reasons we're going through the New Testament, I don't know what year we're in, four? It'll be a while yet. One reason is, is I want us to go through the whole thing. I don't want to skip parts because I don't know how to preach them or because I don't understand them or because they make me uncomfortable. I want to do the whole thing. Maybe we'll do the Old Testament next and I'll retire on that. I don't know. Can I just give you one example of how this works? Uh, Matthew 7, 1 is a verse, do not judge or you will be judged. Jesus said, I hear this verse a lot. And it's usually in the context of, all right, Christians, you're awfully judgy. Bible says don't judge. Jesus himself said don't judge. That's Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 5, Jesus calls people hypocrites, which sounds judgy to me. Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. Judgy. Matthew 7, 20, by your fruit, you'll recognize them. That's a judgment. And then there's the parable of the wise and foolish builders, and the fact that you have foolish builders is a judgment. So that's actually a very judgy chapter. It has one verse that says, don't judge. And if we isolate it, we could build an entire theology of both God and human relationships that is entirely out of line with the rest of the chapter. So if you read all of what the Bible says, which includes a book that's literally called Judges, it's clear. You, you don't judge hypocritically. You judge impartially. You judge fruits, not hearts. And you keep in mind that whatever way you judge, it's coming back to you. What the Bible does is give a construct. It gives guidelines and boundaries. Remember we talked last year about God moves into chaos and brings order? Okay, judgment can be chaotic. God brings order to it, right? So this is the, the full message of Scripture. False teachers will isolate things so as to distort the message. All right, things they did that are listed in the section that I read. I'm, I'm embellishing it a little bit as I'm thinking from other sections of Scripture as well, but I think you'll find all of these are foundational in this particular text. Number one, they have a false sense of self, or what I'll call an inflated sense of self. They're arrogant fools. Proverbs talks a lot about the fool. That's what these teachers, these false teachers sound like as Peter describes them. 
Uh, and this is what I think characterizes people who are arrogant fools. They think they're the smartest person in the room. They don't respect anyone but themselves. If someone disagrees with them, they can't possibly be right. There's no way they know as much as I do. Uh, if you have conversations with them, the focus will always turn back to them at their ministry, at their accomplishments, and who they know, and where they traveled, and what they have done, and why you ought to attend their church and buy their books. And is there picking up with the pattern in my words? Um, it will always come back to them. They'll always make sure their face is front and center. They'll build modern babbles where their name is made great, not incidentally but purposefully. And what I mean by that is sometimes people who love Jesus get the limelight just because the truth that they're presenting is so compelling. They've, they've found a niche. They've found a way. Other people move them into the spotlight. That's what I mean by incidentally. I'm talking here about purposefully. I've thought a lot about this the last few years because I'll be honest, one of my big fears is that I will grow to love the spotlight. And I don't want to love the spotlight like need to breathe sings, money and fame brings a man shame. Ain't no doubt about it. So I've been watching the news lately, and perhaps you've been reading too, that the last two or three years have not been kind to the Christian community in the United States. A lot of very big name pastors and leaders have fallen badly as these scandals emerge, but others have not. So as I've been reading and talking with others, there's six things that stand out to me that true teachers do to avoid this um, inflated sense of self. Number one, they don't pursue fame. Number two, when they get it, they don't really like it. You'll read interviews with them and they'll be like, ugh. I, yeah, they don't like it. They'll reject the trappings of success. They don't live extravagant lifestyles. Um, some of the most compelling stories I've heard of people that I deeply admire because I've read their books and listened to their teaching, I'll meet someone else who knows them personally, and they'll be like, um, when you go hang out with them, they're just folk. Like, there is nothing special about them at all. They don't act, they, they've got these great... Um, Boots on the ground stories of people who are famous in the eyes of the world who seem to have no concept that they're famous. They reject the trappings of success. They limit their public appearances. In other words, they don't travel constantly. I think one of those reasons, by the way, is because they recognize the value of church, community. Um, you'll find a lot of people who travel a lot in ministry. They have no functional home church, and it almost always ends badly. Um, they'll divest their power as they get more sites, as they get more ministries, you name it. They're not the person the buck stops with. They divest themselves of these things. And then finally, they humble themselves under authority. And I don't mean the kind of authority that nods and says yes to everything they do. I mean the kind of authority that says, uh, wake up. This area of your life is out of line. This teaching you gave, is, it's it's starting to move off center, right? They surround themselves with people that they genuinely give access to and they're generally humility to. Next, they have a false sense of freedom. 
So biblical freedom is freedom from the bondage of sin and penalty of death, and it's freedom to follow righteousness. That was clearly not happening in the early church. And as Peter describes certain things there, this really sounds like people were coming to the church, and I'll get to this to in a second, but they appear to have been very publicly exploitive of people in the church. We sometimes see that happen in the United States, but I think we have a different temptation about freedom, and that is, I think it's very easy um, for teachers, for all of us, to begin to confuse United States freedom with biblical freedom, because they're not the same thing. One is freedom of kingdom, one is freedom of empire. So, this will, I think, be an obvious example. I am free in the United States of America to cheat on my wife. It's not illegal. Am I free to do that in the kingdom of God? No. So I actually have a freedom in this country that I don't have as a Christian because my allegiance is to higher kingdom, right? Okay, let's keep going. I'm free in this country to hoard my money. I don't have to share it with anybody. I don't have to be generous at all. Do I have that freedom in the kingdom of God? No. I do not. I am a doulos. I am a slave of Christ. I am free in this country to say virtually anything I want to say. Am I free to do that in the kingdom of God? Not unless I want to sin and hurt you and shame the name of Christ. I'm free in this country to watch pornography. I'm not free to do that in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not allow me to commodify and objectify people. I'm free in this country to love who I want and hate who I want. There is no law against it. Am I free to hate people in the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. That no should have been more robust. Jesus says, you've been taught to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you this, love your enemies. Pray for those who torment you and persecute you. And in doing so, you become children of your Father in heaven. He, after all, loves each of us, good and evil, kind and cruel. He causes the sun to rise and shine on the evil and the good alike. He causes the rain to water the fields of the righteous and the fields of the sinner. It's easy to love those who love you. Even a tax collector can love those who love him. It's easy to greet your friends. Even outsiders do that. But you're called to something higher. Be perfect or complete as your Father in heaven is perfect or complete. And we love your enemies. So let's try this one again. I'm free in the United States to hate people if I want to. Am I free in the kingdom of God to hate people? No, no I am not. In the lobby, I feel like you should add there, Dave. <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm just saying, be careful. False teachers will confuse freedom of America with freedom of the gospel. False path of life. Three things stand out in this passage. Greed, exploitation, and following their desires like dumb animals. So I'll just go through this list quickly. When you start to hear a giant vacuuming sound as teachers personally accumulate money and things because of the gifts of God's people, beware. I'm not talking about teachers who have money because, say, they have a business or they do something else and it's part of our economic system. I'm talking about someone who gets wealthy off the backs of the people in the church. When people around teachers continually quit because they're used or abused spiritually, emotionally, physically, or financially, beware of that. 
If you find a ministry that has a buffer between a leader and everyone else, that's not a good sign. They're protecting people from the leaders. Next, there's a false view of community. So Peter makes clear these false teachers saw the church as a place to exploit. Uh, it seems clear they're, they're using people sexually. They're using people financially. They're gorging themselves on the people, the money, the food, it even says, which was probably love feasts. Their communion times was almost like a potluck where they were supposed to bring food. And ideally, this was so the poor could get a good meal. But what was happening, we read this, I believe, in Corinthians, uh, the wealthy were getting there first and eating all the good food and giving the scraps to the poor. Um, Paul calls them out in Corinthians. But this is what the leader would do. They would benefit from this. There's no mutual honor and respect. There's no accountability and transparency. There's no humility. There's no sense of an ebb and flow of repentance and forgiveness. There's no sense of leaders serving rather than simply asking to be served over and over again. And then here's what happens. This is the last point. I think it's a pretty obvious one. The church gets a bad reputation. Yeah, the church gets a bad reputation because now you have false teachers who are teaching and living in a way that is contrary to the values of the kingdom of God and is contrary to the personality of Jesus Christ. And now you get things like this. I don't know if you can read the graffiti, someone who scrawls on a church. This is the true evil. And anymore, when I talk with people who are angry with Christianity or delusioned by it, a lot of it, so much of it has to do with disillusionment, with leadership. That people who are on the stage, who are in the spotlight, who are front and center, there's things in their life that fall into this category of what Peter said makes them false, and people see that. If you all could pray for me in any particular way, there's lots of ways to pray for me. I would ask you for this one and for others in leadership in this church. Uh, may we have Holy Spirit strength so that we never drag the name of God through the mud. We, we need your prayers on this. We need your accountability on this. Right? Okay, so for my closing, first I invite your inspection. God forbid I teach or live falsely. If you believe I'm doing either one of those, you have the right, if not the duty, to confront me. You can do this in Message Plus. I don't mind. You can come. If I teach something some morning, you're like, I, nope, I don't think so. Come to Message Plus. We work it out in community. You're also welcome to take me out to coffee. That's <laughs> never a bad thing at all. But my second thing then is, I want you to apply this to yourselves as well. You might not be a formal teacher or preacher, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're having conversations with other people about Jesus. You're teaching at some point. So this isn't just about people in a stage spotlight. I think you can apply this in your own personal spotlight. There's a spotlight on you in your home at work, at the gym, when you come here to church, right? So this is for leaders, but all of us are in a position at times where we lead someone else in some fashion. So yes, I, I actually, I would love for you to keep these notes and review them occasionally and look at the leadership of our church 
and ask yourself, are, is my leadership staying true? And if it is, praise God. If it isn't, um, yeah, step up to us, walk into it, right? But also, this is something good for you with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, like I said, something for you to revisit. How am I doing? How am I doing in these areas? Am I teaching well? And may we all, by God's grace, be true in word and deed. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.